Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Catherine Arnold. Catherine has written a fascinating history of how London has treated its mad since the founding of Bethlehem Hospital in 1247, an establishment that would go on to give its name to the phenomenon of Bedlam. It's a story that moves gradually from the darkness of medieval punishment and exorcism towards the light, but it does so via the spectacle of 18th century visits to the madhouse, which was seen as a sort of human zoo, and incarceration behind the walls of Victorian asylums. Catherine's previous book was Necropolis, London and its Dead. So I asked her, would I be right in thinking that she was naturally drawn to dark subjects? I would say that's correct, yes. I do have um, quite a gothic imagination, and I've always been drawn to rather dark, macabre subjects. I've been writing some crime fiction, but not really getting very far with it, because it's um, a craft like anything else. You have to be several, really, before you know what you're doing. And my new agent said, well, what we really could do with is somebody who's prepared to write narrative non-fiction, but on the kind of grim, rather forensic, rather disturbing topics that you seem to find attractive. So I thought, you know, this, this was a very good fit between me as a, as a writer and the material. Having tackled the subject of death, you plunged straight in with madness, with without, madness. without any qualms. <laughs> yes, yes. In some ways, writing about mental illness or madness was more disturbing than writing about death because where is death after you've sort of confronted your, the prospect of your own mortality and several other people's you can sort of strike a deal with it and kind of accept its presence in your life because it happens to everybody mm. I think what was disturbing about um, writing about madness was the level of suffering you know the number of people over hundreds of years who've been neglected and, and badly treated many of whom were locked away who would now be able to function quite well in the community, really, with the right degree of support and medication. That was a real shocker. It's a, it's a very, very big net, isn't it, the term mad in, in earlier centuries. It captures a lot of people, as you say, who wouldn't be classified as having mental health problems today. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it was an enormous sort of carpet bag of a diagnostic term. It, it was mm. a way also, in the 19th century, for, and earlier indeed, for sweeping off the streets anybody who could be seen as any kind of a threat, whether they were unmarried mothers or people who criticised the government at the time or relig- religious zealots mm. or women who, um, say, attempted to emulate male freedom by dressing in men's clothes and going out drinking and sometimes having affairs with other women. I mean, they were sort of locked up as well. So it was, it was a huge diagnostic category. Now, you say right at the beginning of the book, Catherine, that madness runs through the history of London like a watermark. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. In what way does that thread run all the way through the city's history? Well, I see London, obviously, as a a city of rivers, or a river, really, mainly the Thames. Mm. And I was reading some research by somebody like Durkheim, I think, but also by a London journalist, who reflected on the fact that cities that have the highest degree of madness and suicide seem to be, according to sociologists and experts, those cities that have lots of railway stations, lots of bridges and lots mm. of rivers. Now, I don't know if this is because, in pragmatic terms, this gives people more opportunity to try and kill themselves, or yes. whether there's something about a fragmented nature, a constant feeling of movement, yes. and a sense of not having a centre and of being in a place full of flux that possibly undermines people's mental state. But there's also another argument, which is people who are 
disturbed, who are not native Londoners, may actually be drawn towards London and other big cities because they feel that they're somehow they'll find what they need. Of course, they don't. You know, they sometimes end up homeless and, and disturbed. So that was one theory, but also the idea that madness had been there from the very earliest days with the poor creatures who'd been living in a muse in a sort of very rudimentary hospice uh, near a muse where the king's falcons were kept. And this is in the 1300s, the king objected to the noise from the mad people because he said they were upsetting the falcons. And so they were sent over to the hospital of St. Mary of Bethlehem, or mm. Bedlam, as mm. it was becoming known, mm. because when it was first founded, it wasn't specifically a mental hospital. It was simply, as the church had to in those days, it was a place where the sick of any kind could be taken in. When did it become associated exclusively with the mad? Really, towards the 16th century, this is when we get the first idea of Bethlehem as a a mental hospital, indeed as Bedlam, as a term for a place that is manic, noisy and full of unseen people. There were only about 20 patients and they were housed in a, a ramshackle hovel in Bishopsgate. But the idea of Bedlam by then had kind of seeped into the consciousness and there was a start of an informal pattern of people being taken on tours. Many playwrights, including Shakespeare, Webster, Fletcher, visited looking for inspiration. And the plays of the time, the drama of the time, showed many scenes set in a mythical Bedlam. So by that time, it was becoming a sort of a byword for madness. And indeed, at one point in Hamlet, the gravediggers are talking to each other about Hamlet having come home from university and being a bit old. And one says to the other, well, you know, there's a plan to send him to England because um, everybody's mad mm. there, so it's not be noticed. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting that that trope is really detectable from, from then on, isn't it? This, mm. this thing about, oh, the, the, all the world is mad, or all poets are mad, or all generals are mad, or everyone in Parliament's mad. This sort of, this sort of sense of, you know, where, where is the actual boundary between the mad and the sane? Exactly. I mean, there's a quotation from Shakespeare about, you know, that the poet, the lover and the madman are all of one imagination, all compact. They're all essentially similar. I think there's a very English idea that once the passions run away with you, then you're automatically a bit suspect. But there's also sort of the, the conceit, if you like, that the authoritarian figures are mad and it's sort of the ordinary people take a bit of comfort from the fact that they, they can say, oh, well, obviously the king's mad, the government's mad, this is why everything's going wrong. So um, it's part of the theatrical trope, I suppose, of the world turned upside down. I was also interested, in, again, in the, the Elizabethan period, that there appears to be a sort of hierarchy of mental disturbance emerging, so that melancholy in Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy has a sort of certain nobility about yes. it, as opposed to more common, if one can put it that way, common forms of madness. That's right, there's a sort of class structure going on there, where um, sort of being melancholy was a sign of a, recent, a refined sensibility, it was a sign of being a gentleman, it was a sign that you'd studied your classics, you'd been on the grand tour, and you had a poetic sensibility, so you were moved to melancholy by sad music or by too much study, or of course, by being unsuccessful in love, unrequited love was a great source of melancholy. But at the lower levels, of course, simply running mad in the street and stabbing people was a social evil. Anybody who did that kind of thing had to be sort of whipped off fairly quickly and, and tucked away. There's also kind of a gender thing, whereas 
I mean, even to this day, it's very easy to criticise women by calling them hysterical, for instance. They get carried away making a speech in the House of Commons. So the idea of delicate melancholy didn't really extend to women, certainly in the 16th century, but it was very much a badge of honour for upper-class men. It was also very interesting to me to see the tension between, on one hand, treatment, the desire to cure, which could be religiously or later scientifically motivated, versus the the simple, straightforward confinement and containment impulse, and how that sort of changed over over the centuries that you write about. Well, that's right. I mean, one consequence was, of course, the Enlightenment and um, the development of scientific investigation, the development of the origins of modern medicine, when doctors were saying, well, surely there's more can be done with these poor creatures simply than whipping them and locking them up, as in the medieval scenario, or doping them up with opium. Yeah. And that's when basically the origins of psychiatry began, with interested doctors and scholars actually dissecting brains and saying, well, this fellow's behavior was very strange during his life. Ah, oh, now if we look at his brain, we'll see that there's sort of like three ounces of water on it. No wonder mm. he was peculiar. So there's a step away from the religious idea, the Christian idea that madness was really in effect being possessed by devils. And a move to a scientific rationale, which was that madness must be organic in origin. And obviously, given the wide net of their diagnostic criteria, to some extent, they were correct, because in their um, concept of madness, we included things like you know, hypertrophy, water on the brain, or um, GPI, which is the old-fashioned name for general paralysis of the insane, which is secondary syphilis, or other things that are quite obvious today, like Down syndrome or Parkinson's. If you had yes. Parkinson's in the 18th century, you know, you would have been regarded as mad rather than suffering from a, a degenerative nerve disease. Now, tell me about this phenomenon of going to visit the mad like a tourist, because I was struck by the fact that we don't know a great deal about, you know, in, in the sort of popular imagination, we don't know a great deal about medical treatments from previous centuries. And yet this image of people who are going on tours of asylums is really well ingrained even today. And I wondered if, you know, you, you say towards the end of the book that there is, there is some kind of sort of fascination which endures. There's something that makes us want sort of, to sort of contemplate madness. And I wondered if you saw a thread there between um, earlier centuries and the, and the present one. Well, I do, really. It's something I was reflecting on last week in another interview. I'm not the first person to make this comparison, but I often think that the Big Brother phenomenon is, in some respects, a continuation of 18th century visitors flocking to the gates of Bedlam to mm. look at the lunatics. The big distinction is, of course, that the young and the hopeful, which is mainly the young, addition to go on Big Brother, and they put themselves in the stocks in front of us. They really want to be humiliated and, and look stupid because there's money at the end of it and they, they're obsessed with fame. They want to be celebrities. Mm-hmm. Or, of course, you know, whereas, of course, in the 18th century, if your friends or your priests committed you to Bedlam, you had very little choice in the matter. But I think there is the same voyeuristic fascination. And what intrigued me was when I went to the exhibition about Hogarth about mm. three years ago at Tate Britain, the two most popular exhibits were the Rake's Progress and the Harlock's Progress, which appeal to the tabloid reader in all of us. It was the Rake's Progress and the sketches of Bedlam that they were most drawn to, even now. So I think people are fascinated by this idea of disintegration. 
But there's yeah. also the idea that people were put on view and that this was a form of holiday entertainment that you would take in in between going to see the zoo, the menagerie at the yeah. Tower of London and the puppet shows and all the stalls that were put up on, on Moorfields Common on on the holidays, I was going to say bank holidays, they weren't really, they were more like religious holidays. But did it have any kind of moral improving function or intended function or was it was it purely spectacle? Well, it was deplored by um, many writers who felt that it was far from morally uplifting, it was degrading and that the inmates would benefit from having some stoical, sympathetic, quiet visitors, say like Quakers or um, you know, well-intentioned charitable people or religious people, there was increasing anxiety towards the end of the 18th century that it was a freak show. So I don't think, I don't get the feeling that there was much of an idea that it could be morally improving, unlike, for instance, going and walking around cemeteries and looking at the, the tombs of the great and good, which yes. was thought to be morally improving. And of course, what happened was in the 1770s, the sort of dynasty of Monroe's who took over, decided to cease this um, this pattern and they closed the galleries so that you couldn't just walk in and have a look round on a day off anymore. Mm. The only way you could get in was by a special ticket and you'd have to have a very good reason to go and look round. The sad thing about this was that it meant that a lot of abuse went unnoticed for generations because no longer could people go round and poke the lunatic through the bars, but they also couldn't say, well, I don't think he should be chained up or she doesn't look very very happy. Yes. So it went it went from being a sort of rather vile public spectacle to being hidden away and re- removed from sight entirely. Absolutely. Yes. Although there were attempts by the Monroes to to care for their charges and to introduce good regimes, sadly what happened is that it, as in many other mental hospitals over the years a culture sort of took over of despair almost. So you started off with good people working there and after, over the course of the years they became sort of corrupt and demoralised mm. and case-hardened. Let, let me ask you, Catherine, having tackled these two subjects, I, I think I read somewhere that you have in mind a trilogy and I, I sort of wondered yes. what the third, the third tome in the trilogy was going to be. Um, it's called, um, at the moment, it's called City of Sin, London and its vices. Mm. So it's mainly about vice. It's right. mainly about prostitution and um, sort of allied subjects, in drinking, right. um, gambling, but mainly so sort of about sexual vice. Right. So still, still, still potentially dark, but perhaps not quite as dark in all respects as in some respects wonderful. more entertaining to write, right. and yeah. um, in some in some respects probably quite laugh out loud, right. funny. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> 